0: This is a CBC Podcast.
1: Hi there, I'm David Cochran, and this is the Power and Politics Podcast for Friday, December 1st. The fragile truce between Israel and Hamas has broken. An Israel Defence Forces spokesperson about the next phase of this war is coming up. And Ontario Liberals elect a new leader this weekend... Our panel of Queen's Park insiders on who stands the best chance against Premier Doug Ford in 2026. Plus, the political pulse of this week's stunning allegation that an Indian government official allegedly orchestrated murder for hire plots across North America. We begin today in the Middle East, where the temporary truce between Israel and Hamas has expired. (laughs)
2: <laughs>
1: Fighting restarted today with Israeli airstrikes in Gaza and air raid sirens sounding in Israel. The exchange of hostages and detainees has halted and aid is cut off. In the hours before the truce was set to expire, both sides claimed that attacks were carried out by the other. Israel said it intercepted rockets from Gaza and Hamas reported explosions and gunfire inside Gaza. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken was in the region this week. He spoke with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and other government leaders. And this is what Blinken had to say after those meetings.
2: I made clear that before Israel resumes major military operations, it must put in place humanitarian civilian protection plans that minimize further casualties of innocent
1: Palestinians. But Israel has the most sophisticated, one of the most sophisticated militaries in the world. It is capable of neutralizing the threat posed by Hamas while minimizing harm to innocent men, women, and children. And it has an obligation to do so. Ultimately, that's not just the right thing to do. It's also in Israel's security interest. I'm joined now by Lieutenant Colonel Jonathan Conricus, a spokesperson for the Israel Defense Forces. Lieutenant Colonel, thanks for joining us again. Thank you for having me. Uh, The fighting has resumed. Um, You've heard uh, what the Secretary of State, uh, Mr. Blinken, had to say. The U.S. says they they would hope Israel will conduct your offensive into mostly southern Gaza differently this time. How do you plan to change things? Do you plan to change things as you begin this next phase of your offensive?
3: Yes, what uh, Secretary Blinken also said and wasn't broadcast here is that Israel definitely should defeat Hamas and eradicate Hamas, not exactly his words, but the gist of it was, take out Hamas and make sure that at the end of this war, Hamas doesn't exist. And that's an important thing to keep front and center, because that is what we are busy doing. And the details and the method by which we will do that will indeed incorporate the advice or guidance that uh, has been uh, given by the U.S. administration. We listen and we take notice, of course. And this has been the guiding principle all along, to get civilians out of the battlefield and to fight the enemy and the enemy only. And what we're doing this time is that we are perhaps more detailed and more uh, granular in our approach. We have disseminated a map in Arabic for the Gazan population. This is kind of a zoning map at the neighborhood level, which will allow us to communicate our intentions to the people of Gaza, telling them ahead of time where there's going to be fighting and who specifically needs to evacuate. So it won't be a blanket statement of all of the people of Khan Yunis evacuate, but it will be specific neighborhoods and it will be very accurate. We're also very hopeful that the international community and specifically humanitarian organizations will be part of the solution and not part of the pro- problem, but that they will help in facilitating aid to uh, Palestinians that are will be temporarily displaced and to help create and sustain the humanitarian zone that we have erected in the northern part of uh, Khan Yunis, which is also southern Gaza. So we're hopeful that this will be successful, and it is definitely our intention to fight the enemy and the enemy alone.
1: Okay, uh, I, I want to focus a little bit on, on this map you've talked about, because I understand leaflets have been dropped from the air with a QR code that takes people to the map to show where the safe zones would be. Uh, sort of in the past, as we've talked throughout this, it has been get out of northern Gaza, move into southern Gaza, and it was more broadly based in terms of where the fighting would be and where the safer parts would be. Uh, but, but we've seen in the past that you've identified Hamas targets in, say, the Jabalia refugee camp, which we spoke about. What happens if you identify Hamas in some of these more granular neighborhood areas where you're telling people to go? What What is the calculation there? How do you approach that differently than what we've seen in the past?
3: So each case by its own uh, considerations, and I cannot you know commit to exactly what we will do in each case that we will be confronted on the battlefield, we know that Hamas wants to use the civilian population as their human shields. We know that Hamas actively takes steps in order to prevent the safe evacuation of civilians. And we know that not enough has been done on, be- on behalf of humanitarian organizations to facilitate the free flow of aid to the humanitarian zone. What we will try to do is, again, to uh, facilitate that aid, to get people out And when there will be an important military target, military necessity in juristic speech that we would want to strike, we will take additional precautions and to try to be as uh, specific as possible when we strike them. But we must be clear, there is a war going on and we are fighting against a cynical and very brutal enemy that has no problems in sacrificing their own civilian population. And these are the words of Ismail Haniya and of Yich Sinwar and other seniors in Hamas. They say themselves, we are a culture of martyrdom. We want our martyrs. And for us, it's no problem that people die because we believe in the cause. These are Hamas words, and that is what we are up against. And I think that we should be focusing on those practices as well as we're focusing on Israeli countermeasures and what we are doing. At the end of the day, the reason why civilians have been killed is first and foremost because they're held and forced to be there by Hamas. If Hamas wouldn't uh, force them to be there, they wouldn't be there, and then we would be fighting Hamas and Hamas alone, and no civilian would be killed. And then the fighting would be very swift and it would be a very swift victory over Hamas. But they are cowards. And they're cruel, and they're inhumane, and they're using their own civilians as human shields. And that is why Palestinians have sadly been killed
1: during this war. Well, let's just talk about victory over Hamas. And and, and I take your point that they do use people as human shields. And we've seen their leadership do interviews where they said October 7th was a rehearsal, and they will do it again and again and again. Uh, So they are a persistent threat to your security. Uh, That's a given. But how do you know when they have been defeated. Like, what is the metric for when this mission ha- has achieved its goal? Because I've seen estimates of thirty to 40,000 Hamas fighters. Uh, the leadership is dispersed around multiple countries and in multiple areas. We're not even really sure how many of them are in Gaza right now. So how does the rest of the world know when you've achieved that goal of eliminating Hamas? Is it thirty to 40,000 dead soldiers? Is it the entire leadership killed? Like, what is the metric for victory and the end of this fighting? So
3: the thing that is more tangible that we can speak about, you know, one thing when you're fighting a war against an enemy, it's usually about breaking the enemy's will to fight. And if you ask any military professional, what is victory? It means that your enemy doesn't have the will to continue fighting. That's usually very elusive. And you only know after you have taken away the enemy's ability and will to fight because he raises his hands and surrenders. It's difficult to say what will it take in order to achieve that. So what we can speak about in more specific, tangible terms are military capabilities. And in this case, tunnels, rockets, missiles, explosives, and the amount of enemy combatants that are in an organized military framework under hierarchy that are capable of executing missions. And we've done very good progress in northern Gaza. 11 out of 12 battalions have been significantly impaired in terms of their combat capabilities. Some of them are totally out of commission. Some still have some uh, ca- combat capabilities and we will continue striking those uh, as we speak. And for the other parts of Gaza, we will do the exactly the same and perhaps more with the other battalions. At the end of the war, And this may take a while. It may not necessarily be a swift and short endeavor, but at the end of it, we will take out the combat infrastructure, the logistic infrastructure, and the political and administrative support system that supports Hamas' capability to fight against us. We may not be able to kill all of the seniors or capture them, and we may not get our hands on all of the enemy combatants. But there's a certain threshold after which you take out their command and control their logistics right. their ability to resupply and function uh, freely that will is usually the uh, tipping point in any fighting and it's true if you're fighting a, an organized military a nation state military or a army of
1: terrorists like Hamas. So so the the duration, obviously, to to achieve those goals are very uncertain, uh, right, Uh, as you said. And we have this civilian population, which is uh, more than a million, I think it's fair to say, I've heard as high as 1.8 million, displaced from northern Gaza into southern Gaza. I know you say you're going to drop these maps with a level of granularity of where they can go, but... There's just not a lot of space left for that volume of people to seek safety, knowing that Hamas is embedded in the population down there, and you said you will shoot at high-value targets You know, using your, your, def- your decision-making process. They don't seem to be, the civilian population of Gaza, in a much safer position uh, in this. If the fighting can continue for a long period of time, and just physically, sir, there's just no space for that crush of people uh, for a war to be happening around them in in any kind of a safe way.
3: I agree with you that it is a difficult situation, very difficult, and I feel for the people in Gaza who are not supporters of Hamas and are stuck in very difficult condition. I, I understand. This is highly, highly inconvenient and I'm sure even beyond that. But we don't really have a choice. If we don't finish this mission, if we don't take out Hamas, then they will come back, as you said, and try to do worse than October the 7th again and again and again. And it leaves us no choice but to finish the job with Hamas. We will do so while focusing on combatants, trying to spare civilians and keep them out of harm's way. It would be great, you know, for the sake of Palestinian civilians, if Hamas understood this came out of their tunnels that they're hiding underneath the civilians with their hands up, turned over our 137 hostages that they keep in Gaza, and uh, tell, that them, tell us that they surrender unconditionally, that would spare all the lives. I don't think that Israel would continue fighting if Hamas did that, and it's up to them. But we are left with no choice. We listen to our enemy. We see what they did on October the 7th. And we understand that in terms of our commitment to defending Israelis, we have no choice but to eradicate Hamas and make sure that our civilians can live safely in their homes. If we don't, they won't be able to. And therefore, unfortunately, we have to continue. We're sacrificing our own soldiers. They are at risk. And there's tremendous destruction, and uh, killing, which is not what we wanted. Again, we didn't want this war and we didn't start it. It's been forced upon us. But at the end of the day, we have no choice but to fight this war and to defeat Hamas. If we don't, Israelis will not be safe, and that will be an unsustainable situation.
1: No choice, as you say, on on your strategic objective of eliminating Hamas, but there will be a series of tactical choices that you will make uh, throughout that process. And and you've outlined how you're releasing this neighborhood-by-neighborhood sort of map to show where people can go. I know you've talked about… And the
3: humanitarian zone. And the humanitarian zone. Super
1: important. Right, but in the past you've used text messages, for example, to SMS messages to alert people. The criticism has been they've come too late and the bombs came too quickly after that and people didn't have time to go or it wasn't safe for them to move. So, so how much notice do you give... This is what they've said. You can dispute it if you want. But, but how much notice will you give people on the fighting, on this, because going back to the crush of people in a very difficult small space that has been the subject of intense fighting... They need time to move so yeah. so so what is the advanced warning standard
3: yeah, I don't think that criticism is really fair, you know, and I don't think that those who criticize us in that way can give even one single example of any other military that was fighting to defend its own civilians living just a few miles away that gave any warning to uh civilians within enemy territory to evacuate like we did and mind you, we provided two and a half weeks of notice. We told Gazans in northern Gaza, two and a half weeks ahead of, start, before we started to maneuver, we told them that we're going to maneuver. Right. I think that is ample time to move mountains, not only 1.1 1. 1 million people, including evacuating hospitals and including evacuating people that are limited in their ability to move. Uh, But the decision was made by Hamas and by different UN organizations not to evacuate, not to listen to the warnings. And by doing so, they jeopardized the safety of those Palestinians. We gave warnings. Two and a half and a half weeks ahead of time and we continue to warn and even while we were fighting on the ground we stopped the fighting for four and five hours every day in order to allow civilians to evacuate select areas where they were fighting frankly i don't think that any other, other military has ever done that in modern times and i don't think that that criticism towards the idf is fair
1: so, so just a final point sir what you said earlier that you would hope that humanitarian groups and aid groups would be part of the solution rather than part of the problem. You criticize them for not effectively delivering aid to people. The aid groups we've spoken with have said the fighting and, and the way it, the IDF has conducted th- things tactically has made it very difficult for them. Many of them have lost people, lost family members, been killed uh, by the war in there. What is it you're, sa- you're, you're saying the aid groups have done that, that, that wasn't appropriate here?
3: yeah of course that 's sad that uh, people who work for organizations that are supposed to be providing humanitarian aid and i 'm sure many of them do uh, were unfortunately killed as part of the fighting. I cannot take responsibility for them i don 't know exactly where they were and what happened. I can only express sadness that they are uh, that they were affected by uh, the fighting. They were definitely not targeted by us, but th- these things unfortunately happen in war. What I'm saying is that if you remember our previous conversations a month ago and a month and a half ago, when we issued our warning, please evacuate, the response that we got from UNRWA, from the World Health Organization, from UNICEF, and from uh, Doctors Without Borders was, this cannot be done. You mustn't move people from the battlefield. Now the criticism is you didn't give them enough time. What I'm saying is that they... Yeah, well, obviously there's, it's always easy and in mode, in vogue, to criticize Israel. But we are really trying to protect our civilians and minimize the damage to non-combatants. And that is why we have told them to evacuate and we have told them where to go. Unfortunately, instead of, Humanitarian organizations who are supposed to care for the humanitarian needs of the Palestinians and not to be a tool that eternalizes Hamas control over the Gaza Strip, they are supposed to help with that. And I fail to understand what their reasoning is. They understand that war is coming. They understand that if people remain in a combat zone, there will be casualties. Why on earth would you not help them? Why wouldn't you persuade them? Why wouldn't you put your vehicles at their disposal? Why wouldn't you evacuate hospitals ahead of time? Why wait for things to become severe and for these tragic, uh, horrible scenes that we've seen over the last month and a half? Why do that? only to use it against Israel as a way of a political tool and to help Hamas in their propaganda campaign. If people really care about the lives of Palestinians, then help us get them out of the battlefield. And we have provided not a perfect solution, but the best possible solution that we can give. And that's a humanitarian area where where there's no Hamas infrastructure, so there's very little probability that there will be any fighting there. And that is where we have told people to evacuate. Now, if they would have put tents there and would have uh, channeled all the uh, internally displaced Palestinians there, that would have been much, much better. And it would have made it safer. And that's why we are still calling out. We are still asking for it and pleading with organizations, help us minimize the damage to civilians and get get them out of harm's way. We are willing to uh, compromise our own efficiency on the battlefield. We are advertising ahead of time where we're going to fight. Why isn't that seen as a real genuine effort and why aren't they in In part of the solution instead of uh, helping Hamas putting people in harm's way. I really can't understand it.
1: Okay, Uh, that is a much longer conversation. I've used up all of our time, but you you know uh, the aid groups would have a very different version of that, and perhaps we can discuss it uh, at a future date. But Lieutenant Colonel Jonathan Conricus, a spokesperson for the Israel Defense Forces, uh, thank you very much for, for joining us today.
3: Thank you for having me.
1: Ontario Liberals will soon find out who will lead them into the next election against Premier Doug Ford and the Progressive Conservatives. Four candidates are vying to take on that challenge. Mississauga Mayor Bonnie Crombie is a perceived front run- runner. Meanwhile, MPs Nate Erskine Smith and Yasser Nackfi have teamed up to encourage their backers to select them as first and second on the ranked ballot in the hopes of stopping Crombie a uh, deal MPP, Ted Shu, the fourth candidate, declined to be a part of. Rob Benzi is the Queen's Park Bureau Chief for the Toronto Star. Sabrina Nanji is a journalist and founder at the Queen's Park Observer, and they join us now to discuss what we can expect from tomorrow's candidate selection. So, uh, Sabrina, look, we've seen a record number of members sign up to vote uh, for, for this, like 100,000, I think, eligible people, up from 44,000 in the last leadership contest. I mean, what do you make of, of that growth in those numbers?
4: yeah I mean the grits are feeling galvanized like you said it's record numbers for them over a hundred thousand just over 103,000 members signed up Uh, that's record numbers for them but I think it all is going to depend on who actually showed up for this I mean for the first time ever the liberals Are electing their leader through one member one vote ranked ballot that's kind of what we're used to seeing for most other political parties across the country it's how Doug Ford became leader of the PCs back in 2018 and so really every vote mattered voting happened last weekend we're gonna get the ballot count tomorrow Uh, but but the grits are feeling good they're really pumped up now don't forget they've been uh, you know in the penalty box for since 2018 they have you know third place unrecognized status in the house but they have managed to to uh, pay off their campaign debt, this liberal leadership race not only got them a bunch of headlines, it's very competitive. Uh, that That's also a win for any political party, more than the NDP could say, because of course they just sort of coronated Marit Stiles for the NDP who ran unopposed. They brought in millions of dollars, just Bonnie Crombie herself brought in more than $1.2 m- uh, million. that's, you know... Of course, we know that a cash arsenal matters when you want to run a competitive election campaign, and so they're feeling good right now. It's still a long ways for them to go, uh, but I think that they're they're seeing this as their way to you know come back to relevancy in Ontario.
1: So, so Rob, you know, one hundred thousand people eligible to vote. That doesn't mean one hundred thousand people voted, right? It's almost never that way. Signups are one thing; uh, delivery is another. Do we have a sense of like? Who got their numbers out? You know uh, who's feeling pretty good. How big the turnout actually was, and, and, and any indicators as to what we might see.
5: I think. Uh, I mean, they haven't liberals haven't told us uh, yet how many people voted, but I'm assured that it was fewer than twenty five thousand. So that's oh. less than a quarter of eligible. Now, remember, David, th- they it, membership in the Liberal Party is free. So because people didn't have to pay ten dollars or twenty dollars to join, they didn't really have as much skin in the game as as party members often do. Uh, they they uh, eliminated the fee, uh, Stephen Del Duca, the previous leader, did that as a way to get more people interested in, in the party. And it, and it has helped, to Sabrina's point, they have paid a, or <laughs> enlisted 103,000 members. The, uh, the problem is, uh, you know, the majority of those didn't show up last weekend. Um, I don't know who got their vote out most effectively. I think Bonnie Crombie is probably going to win um that's the safest bet whether she can win on the first ballot or the second ballot i don't know i mean I've, her campaign is very confident as sabrina mentioned she, she raised 1.2 million dollars the, the 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 runner-up in the fundraising was Nate erskine smith who raised five hundred and fifteen thousand right. dollars so you know less than half uh and and he and, and erskine smith is a pretty effective um you know organizer as well as is yasser nakfi uh, and, and to a lesser extent, Ted Shu. he raised, uh, the, the, Yasser and uh, and Ted each raised under $400,000. But this has been good, a competitive race has been good for the party. They're four solid candidates. They've got people enthusiastic about a party that was in power for 15 years from 2003 to 2018. And as Sabrina mentioned, doesn't even have official status in the legislature. They only have nine MPPs in the 124-member House, and you right. need 12 to be recognized as a party.
1: But it's interesting, Sabrina, you put that 100,000 uh, number in the window of people you've signed up, but if you know if Rob's intelligence is right, and I have no reason to doubt it, that fewer than 25,000 people voted. I, I mean, look, 103,000 is still good for your data collection and your email blasts and all of those things come the election. But if the turnout is that low compared to its potential, who do you think that favors is is it crombie the front runner or can this uh, Nacv erskine smith sort of vote for me vote for him uh, alliance get get them in, into the poll position here
4: yeah i think certainly um, this strategic voting tactic from erskine smith and Nacv will probably take some support away I, it, I guess it remains to be seen if it's actually going to work uh, i i Talk to people in Bonnie Crombie's camp, as Benji Benzie mentioned. they're they're feeling very confident right now, um, and according to their internal numbers, you know they, they've told me that there's no path to victory for any of her rivals, which is pretty bold, you know, to say before we actually have the ballot count. But but they're feeling very good. Uh, I think that. You know, Bonnie Crombie has been seen as the front runner for a lot of reasons throughout the race. Not only her fundraising prowess, but uh, she's popular in the GTA. Obviously, Mississauga mayor, uh, and we know that the 905 is a vote-rich area that can make or break you at Queens Park. Uh, she's also very good at getting under Doug Ford's skin. I mean, the premier's office, Ford—he—they he, take any opportunity they can to, you know, make jabs at at Bonnie Crombie even before she's mm. taken the party crown, and so i think that's a clear sign they they see her as a threat uh and certainly you know a lot of people are, are looking at her as the one to to bring them back to uh the premier seat eventually
1: so so rob on that point right we, we have seen ford take shots at bunny crombie uh because of this you know front runner 905 uh kind of status she's faced some criticism for allowing development in the green belt and, and different things like this is, is she who the conservatives fear the most is she who the new democrats fear the most because i don't know if we talk enough about that right the move to displace merritt styles in the ndp as the official opposition here uh, what what's your read on it
5: i think that she's she's who the the Tories fear the most for sure now we have an abacus poll in the in the star today that shows she would be bring the liberals to 31 points and 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 ford would be at 39 points in a theoretical head to head contest with right. the ndp in third um, and that's better than, than without her at the, at the helm, where it's 42 for the Tories and, and 23 for the Liberals and the, and the NDPs at 24. So she she certainly, uh, the, and the Tories are doing their own research, uh, I'm sure, uh, that shows similar things. Um, so you know, she also lives kind of rent-free in Doug Ford's head. It's very interesting to watch. He visibly gets ticked off when you mention her name. Uh, he knows her well because they worked together when she was mayor of Mississauga yeah, of on course. a bunch of initiatives. And she, she just, uh, Sabrina is right. She rankles him, gets under his skin. Uh, I'm willing to bet, uh, David, that if I asked Mr. Ford who the other three candidates were, he couldn't name them because he <laughs> he's never mentioned any of them that I that I've heard. So I think, uh, I think, and and remember the, the the Tories hold every every single seat in the 905, right. uh, except for one that's a former Tory who's an independent. So the, they they know that if if those seats start falling like dominoes. Uh, they've got a problem, and, um, and I think they're, they're, they're wary of her, for sure.
1: Right, okay. I, I need, uh, Sabrina, just a quick 30 seconds for you, and then Rob, on, on the by-election in Kitchener Center last night, the Greens won that, doubling the size of their caucus from one to two. Uh, you know, uh, what does it mean to see the Greens break through in Kitchener Center like this?
4: Oh, a huge win for the Greens last night. Uh, I, I think, you know, it's a by-election. It wasn't going to change the makeup at Queen's Park. Doug Ford and the PC still have this whopping 79-seat majority, um, but I think the stakes were very high for Marit Stiles in particular. I mean, this was their seat to lose. Uh, it was left vacant by Laura May Lindo, former NDPer uh, who resigned in the summer, and Marit's been dealing with a, a bit of a caucus rift over the Sarah Jama ouster and, and Sarah Jama's comments on the Israel-Hamas war. So I think the, the NDP certainly is still smarting a major victory for the, the Greens, but I think even the Conservatives who placed third you know, with their out-of-towner candidate, uh, they're, they're kind of sitting pretty right now, and they're feeling good because obviously galvanized Green Party could potentially split the vote for the Liberals and the NDP, and so I think the Conservatives are, are kind of looking at that a bit gleefully, too.
1: Right, so, so Rob, just quickly on that, I mean, the Greens the big winner, are the NDP the big loser, and is this Israel, Hamas, Sarajama? is that fallout there with the progressive vote coalescing, or is it just local? <laughs>
5: yeah although i mean we know the federal green party uh, Im- had its own implosion over uh over the middle east too so i'm not really sure that this is mm-hmm. that's the, the factor there i think it was a strong local candidate um uh the green candidate was the, was a, a popular counselor they ran a good campaign but it, but uh, sabrina's right this was a very very bad result for the New democrats they held the seat they had four, they won 40 percent of the vote last year uh and when they won the seat and then the mpp decided she didn't want to be an MPP anymore um, and, and this, last night they won, I think 27, 28% and the, and the, and the, uh, the, the greens were at like 48%. Right. It was a very, a very bad gang. result for the liberals though. Liberals were fourth with like 8%, which is pathetic and not good as they head into this weekend, uh, voting or weekend, uh, uh, leadership race.
1: Okay. Gang, always appreciate it. Rob Benzie with the Toronto Star, Sabrina Nanji with the Greens Park Observer. Thanks so much.
4: Thanks.
1: news coming out of
0: the United States further underscores what we've been talking about from the very beginning, which is that India needs to take this seriously.
1: Bombshell allegations outlined in a U.S. indictment quicken the pulse of national and international politics this week. The step-by-step details of a murder-for-hire plot allegedly orchestrated by an official in the Indian government may help explain the Prime Minister's decision to publicly accuse India of playing a role in the murder of Hrdeep Singh Nijer, a Sikh activist gunned down in British Columbia in June. It also casts new light on those hot takes about the cold shoulder Justin Trudeau seemed to get from Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi at the G20 summit in New Delhi. That's where we're going to start things off with our panel of party insiders. Greg McEachern, former Liberal Ministerial Staffer, now with Cannes Strategies. Melanie Richey, former Director of Communications to the New Democratic Party and now a Senior Consultant with Earnscliffe Strategies. And Fred Delory, former Conservative Campaign Manager and partner at North Star Public Affairs. Uh, happy Friday, uh, gang. Uh, so this is the 15-page indictment, which spells all of this out and suggests, Greg, that the Americans have a lot of phone evidence, digital evidence, source evidence, and even money that they, uh, their, their undercover operative was given. How do we view what happened in September with Justin Trudeau and Narendra Modi now that this has come out in the U.S.?
0: If I was to be really cynical... If it happens in the United States, we take it seriously. <laughs> but when it happens in Canada, well, Justin Trudeau must have stepped on a rake here. Mm. There were tremendous, horrendous bad takes. And uh, sorry to plug my Twitter feed, but I've been going through <laughs> them this afternoon in preparation for the show. Yeah, y- you've been dunking like Jordan, you know? Uh, and it will never come back and bite me, I'm sure. Yeah, no. But uh, yeah, there were some really, really bad takes. And, uh, and I will remind people that part of the reason why the government chose to tell Parliament the way they did was their hand was being forced by the yes. Globe and Mail. Yes. Um, you know, there's a Canadian who does some commentary for um, CNN, for example, and his column for CNN, when I went back and looked at it, he was questioning why the Prime Minister chose to do it at this time. Well, that's a pretty basic fact to have left out at the time, but it's also very telling about the type of reporting we have. There are a lot of columns that were written about this. What I've noticed as well... There's some some uh, politicians as well, but what I've noticed as well, but with those columns, is a lot of those uh, columnists have not said a word this week yeah. about the uh, American revelations.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. Mel, uh, what, what's your take on what we learned and, and how the, the, the hindsight we now have because of it?
6: Yeah, so I think uh, some people did a really good job back in September to treat this very carefully. This was, at the time, an allegation about a Canadian that was killed on Canadian soil. Um, And it should have been taken with the utmost care um, and without any partisan uh, politics, any partisan shots, um, as it related to that. And and, uh, the Indian trip as well, All um, all, all of the rhetoric that we saw around that about, you know, Justin Trudeau stepping into it or Justin Trudeau false moves, whatnot. I remember at the time I thought, ah, oh, some of this just isn't and I don't have the word in English still, but to put zing depriminists. Like it's not um, at the level that you expect somebody who's running to be Prime Minister um, mm-hmm. to operate in. And and that's what I had felt at the time about some of the rhetoric that we saw from, from Pierre Pellievre. Um and I'm sure uh, sick Canadians across the country probably felt the same way. So to see this out of coming out of the United States probably uh, for a lot of folks is um Not reassuring, but it it confirms what they've thought for a while, um, and uh, hopefully we see um, more actions taken in the next little bit about how this is going to be dealt with in the future.
1: Roland Paris from the University of Ottawa, who used to be the foreign policy advisor for the Prime Minister, so you know take that uh, in perspective. He called it a vindication Mm -hmm. yesterday. I I don't. These are allegations; are not proven. Fred, Uh, your take on this one?
2: I think it is a vindication. At the end of the day, the Prime Minister rose with some very serious allegations, Mm -hmm. and we're now seeing uh, you know our, our biggest. Ally is dealing with the exact same issue and has, has evidence on it. Mm. Um, again, allegations, yes, but it, mm-hmm. it seems to be vindicated in that regard. At the same time, though, the prime minister's reputation on the world stage is has been called in question for some time now. So when these stories came out, when uh, you know the trip to India that didn't seem to go so well, there was a lot of uh, I think valid points being made and questions being raised about that. Then uh, they you know turns out that a lot of that wasn't uh, the reality that we may have been seeing, uh, but. So I, th- I think that's where we are now. Is that you know there is a vindication here. So, so
1: Greg, uh, your, your misplay uh, of this week. It's not all about India, but India is kind of part of it. Uh, where'd you want to go with this?
0: Yeah, so, uh, you know, whatever reason why we are in the atmosphere we're in right now. There's a phrase um, your earlier panel talked about the silly season mm-hmm. when it gets near the the end of a sitting and and government is trying to get. Legislation passed. And there's a lot of, let's be honest, this time of year, a lot of associations in town, a lot of receptions um, make good choices out there, people. (laughs) Um, But um, there can be, you know, some really bad um, uh, takes or uh, actions. And I think when you look at everything through the lens of a partisan advantage, this is the trouble that you start to get into. Um, And I would talk about uh, Rachel Thomas's decision to appear as if she is a conservative social media influencer who has a side hustle as a member of Parliament. Um, and I can tell you that one of the things you really dislike um, when you're in an election, um, such as the Liberals were in 2008, when there's a Thanksgiving weekend, You know, that was the pivot point for a lot of people around Dion, because people had conversations. Mm -hmm. I would worry for the Conservatives that there's going to be a lot of conversations in Quebec this Christmas about some old takes on, um, you know, English first, French French second. But there's other ones as well. It is more than a week later, and we're still talking about the Conservatives' vote against the Ukraine free trade deal. They're still trying to explain that. And again, that's a partisan take, and it's not helping them.
1: Okay, we're going to park the Rachel and Thomas thing because we're actually going to talk about that a little bit later. But, but Mel, you know, to Greg's point, that on the way, partisanship is the mm-hmm. first lens. It, it's like issues are not looked at as an issue to be solved, but rather an opportunity to be exploited, totally. increasingly so. Right?
6: Totally, and an opportunity to try to slam dunk on someone when mm-hmm. sometimes it even backfires. But um, for I'm just going to go rewind again for folks watching at home when you see that. It's obvious that it's just partisanship, and I think that's what breeds a lot of cynicism with regular Canadians when they do look to see who they're voting for the next one. So, excuse me, when you see the t- your different plays that you've laid out, um, what I was thinking about uh, earlier was we, a few weeks ago, we talked about how... Um, uh, disciplined at uh, Pia and the Conservatives have been lately and have been really punching through on housing and affordability. And I think that's why we're seeing the numbers shift the way that they have in polling. I think when you get too comfortable, um, you make mistakes and those numbers will maybe change a little bit. Or you make these these mm. silly, undisciplined comments and that's what makes the news. So I think it was a, a second week of maybe less discipline messaging from the conservatives. Right. Um, and we're seeing these different stories.
1: Uh, Fred, you know, in sports they call them trap games, right? Where you think you're, you're so much better than the opponent, you let your guard down and, mm. and then you start to make mistakes and it suddenly makes it competitive again. Is this what we're kind of seeing here a little bit? That's actually know.
2: a great analogy. It seems like sometimes you yeah, have maybe you lose a few weeks or a yeah. few games. At the end of the day, you still win the championship. The best, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes, it, depends, it depends when you're bad or when you're good, right? Right. And look, there's been some issues the last few weeks. There's no question. Uh, but at the end of the day, they are playing politics. The Conservative Party is. This is politics. This is the the game we're, we're all playing. I, sorry, I shouldn't say that. Only the Conservative Party is playing it because the other parties... As I've been saying consistently for some time now, I have a narrative, they don't, the other yeah. political parties. They're not, they're not cohesive with what they're doing. Um, so the Conservatives are always looking for opportunities to uh, build their base, to grow it in, in different directions that they haven't in the past, and they're doing it. And we're seeing those very large polling numbers because of this.
1: Yes, as you famously once said on the show, it's called power and politics, not politics and feelings, <laughs> right? right? Uh, all right, Mel, uh, you, you've also got what you consider to be a bit of a misplay of the week, and it has to do with the the, the environmental agenda of this government.
6: Yeah, so um, COP28 started yesterday. The environment, minis- the environment minister is, is heading out to COP. Um, we've seen a few uh, setbacks on the government's environmental plan in the last few weeks, um, and for a government that was really focused on this being a part of their legacy, um, part of what they do, um, as government in Canada, uh, it was disappointing to see the government not really have a narrative going into COP. Um, the minister was doing interviews, and all I could hear was, well, we don't really have something yet to present because we're mm. we're still dealing with the blows from the Supreme Court, which um, legitimate in the application of what you're trying to announce, but that, if that's your only message, um, especially to folks who are maybe questioning um, your commitment to um, the environment after the exemption on the carbon tax and probably not what they want to see this week heading into that conference.
1: Greg, maybe not a clear message going in, but it sounds like there's going to be a clear message coming out, because it sounds like we're going to get an oil and gas emissions cap before COP is over, right? Like, Stephen Gobo's over there, I guess there will be some sort of companion announcement here in Canada, otherwise, you know, man the ramparts. I mean, what do you think of this, uh, this situation with COP?
0: Well, I think... If you look, I think there 's nineteen liberal MPs that have been calling for something similar mm-hmm. um, going from some national observer reporting there and from memory, so hopefully I have that correct so the, I, I would not be surprised around that, but you know the the challenge is um, the Prime Minister put it this week sounded very similar to some things we were talking about last Friday night when we were talking about whether or not the FES, uh, the fall economic statement broke through. The Prime Minister said, well, everybody wants to talk about Pierre Polivar's week and and how that went. So you do have so many choices that, you know, what is going to, to break through. You know, Fred talks about the narrative. Yeah, there's a narrative, but you have this other issue when you're government. It's called governing. You have to do you things. You become
1: a prisoner of that, though. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and
0: but if you notice, they are still focused on housing, and yeah. maybe it's not breaking through every time nationally, but each time it's breaking through very strongly in regional media.
1: Now, that that that's a very interesting tactical point. We we lose uh, sight of here in, in the bubble. Fred, I know you love the fez talk, but well, what about COP? Uh, you know, what, what do you think of this? That are they deliberately underplaying this to to keep the attention on other things? Well,
2: it's funny. I found out today uh, when Mel raised it that we're actually having that COP is happening now. Uh, so it wasn't something that was on top of radar for a lot of folks. Uh, I do know Premier Smith and Premier Mo. I found out are going as well though, So yes. that's great. Um, no, I think uh, to Greg's point, I think it's what's going to come out of COP that it's going to be. Uh, important to the liberals. I do think they've you know, there we're seeing an unwinding of their environmental plan, with their, where they're carving out some of the carbon tax. They've lost their Supreme Court case on the, or the court case on sp- on plastic straws. So, I, you know, going into it's hard to message when you're having it unwind by different sources.
1: I, I'm fascinated to see what's going to happen with with the with the emissions cap uh, announcement, and we'll be speaking to Daniel Smith next week from Dubai. Uh, all right, so Fred, uh, you've got a misplay for us, and it kind of goes back to where Fred, uh, sorry, where Greg started this, and goes right. back to Rachel Thomas. Right? What do you got there?
2: Yeah, so uh, Rachel Thomas that committee yesterday uh, asked uh, the, the minister to uh, to answer a question in in, uh, in English uh, and I can tell you like talking to a lot of conservative Quebecers in the last few days like a lot of people are very upset about this mm. uh, and, and in English Canada as well where it feels okay. like uh, you know this is our party's trying to grow and mm. show that we're capable of governing. Uh, and in so many ways we are, but when we make these this, these missteps, and we talked about that earlier today too, about these, they do accumulate. Mm. And this is something that, you know, the Bloc Québécois, when we give them ammunition, uh, they use it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this is something they have now for the next election. And it's great that she came out uh, you know, a few hours later and apologized. But the clips still exist. They're still there.
1: Yes, and the apology is not anywhere but an email to the committee. Like, we talked about this last yes. time in the power panel, but, like, you know, she used a social media, Mel. That's what this was about. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you really want to get an apology out there, mm-hmm. that's where you do it, right?
6: hmm mm-hmm. And I think goes to show that um, if the conservatives want to grow, they're not going to grow in Alberta. They're not going to grow in places where because well, people- they got everything. No but more that's seats. That's what I mean. Yeah. Like, there's, there's no yeah. more seats there. So I don't know what the... The gotcha there was maybe it was, like, I think you're just getting so far ahead of yourself that you think everything is partisan, that you can't see that. um, Mm. That actually, there's some historical context there that's actually quite hurtful. Um, And if you're trying to grow in Quebec, and at the cost of the Quebecois, that's just... Ammunition that they're going to use for a long time. I remember it wasn't that long ago where um, Alexandre actually was talking about how um, the the French only or the English only context isn't actually that long, right? Like yeah. his dad yeah. uh, made less because he was a francophone. Mm-hmm. Um, so that history and that hurt, um, a lot of folks still live it in a really real way. Um, and if they don't, their parents have told them about it. So um, for yep. the Conservative MPs who are in Quebec, I'm sure they're not very pleased right now. Um, and that'll be a hard hill to climb um, in the next election for sure. Okay,
1: we got about 60 seconds left in the show. Greg, what's your take?
6: Um,
0: we were told after Quebec City, where they had their convention, and that was on purpose why they were in, in Quebec, that they were not going to be, um, you know, smug. But I think polls have gone to their head, and this is why the Conservatives are making these kind of mistakes. As a friend of mine said to me this week, the drapes don't measure themselves. So people may be, you know, out a little <laughs> bit ahead. Marie Vastel on your earlier panel talked about how much this resonated in Quebec. Canadians need to realize there is a star system, there's a huge can- Quebec media um, a- atmosphere where this has been generating around for the last 48 hours. Yeah. And I think it will. Pay a, pay, they'll have to pay a price for it.
1: Okay. Uh, We've got to leave it there, gang. I always appreciate it. Thank you so much. Fred Delory, Melanie Richet, Greg McKechnen, thanks so much. And this is, uh, the fir- it's Friday. It's the first day of December, and we're preparing for some holiday shows. Already, For one of those shows, we're going to assemble a group of our CBC journalists to answer your questions about the top political stories of the year. So send us your questions. You can email us, politics at cbc.ca. What did you think was the biggest political story of the year? What do you want to know about what it's like to report on politics? And what political stories are you going to watch for in the new year? Again, that email is politics at cbc.ca. That's it for today. If you like this episode, please follow the pod and catch our next live show on CBC News Network. We're on weekdays at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. I'm David Cochran. Thanks for listening.